Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book, so you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. It talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now a part of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Carlos Sonnenschein, MD. He's part of the Tufts University School of Medicine, Integrative Physiology and Pathobiology. And we're going to talk about uh, his work on cancer. So, Carlos, thanks for coming. Oh, on the contrary, thanks for inviting me. Well, no problem, yeah. Well, tell me about what, what got you interested in cancer in the first place, and then I want to ask you what your research is about. Okay, as you mentioned, I am a, I have been trained as a physician. I practiced uh, pediatrics uh, for five years, and then I quit and became a, a researcher, an empirical researcher. And um, I did uh, genetics and cytogenetics, and then I moved to the United States uh, here and uh, in Boston, and I spent four years at the Dana-Farber, and then I moved to Tufts University, and I have been there for a number of years now. Now, the reason why I started uh, working on this issue is uh, somewhat, uh, let's say, funny, because I started asking the question, why do cells proliferate? And uh, uh, together with my colleague, uh, Anna Soto, who joined me at the lab. And uh, we're starting under the premise that uh, you have to stimulate cells in order to proliferate. And I adopted the endocrine system. I had background on endocrinology and the established cell lines that were estrogen sensitive. As I said, 
uh, the question was, why do cells proliferate? And I thought that uh, estradiol would uh, stimulate cells and directly. And uh, after a number of uh, attempts, uh, we concluded that uh, what estradiol was doing was canceling an inhibition under which these cells proliferated. In other words, we started with, uh, we changed the premise that is uh, even today in the textbooks claiming that uh, proliferation is a, an inducible property of cells by claiming that proliferation is a constitutive property of cells. In other words, the only thing that you can do in order to um, uh, regulate the proliferation is stop them. Otherwise, they would proliferate. So what kind of cells did you choose you know, for this experiment? And um, well, I yeah. started with uh, uh, endopituitary cells, rat pituitary cells. Then I moved to breast cancer cells, uh, specifically MCF7 and T47Ds. And uh, uh, the results were consistent in the sense that serum contains an inhibitor. And what the SADIO does is precisely cancel that, the inhibition that uh, this inhibitor produces on the cell. But that has been, let's say, we have evidence now that that can be, let's say, extended to all cells. For example, in the case of uh, liver regeneration, obviously, by now, People always thought that there were growth factors that uh, stimulated the cells in order to proliferate. But then you have to ask the question, how come that they stop? In other words... What kind of cells in the body are estrogen sensitive versus not? Do you hypothesize all cell types are or just the ones you picked? No, no. They, they are estrogen sensitive cells. They are androgen sensitive cells. We work with... Uh, uh, prostate cells that uh, contain estrogen, uh, androgen receptors and uh, manipulated those cells with uh, receptors or androgens. So cells, most cells have their own way of proliferating according to the inhibitors that they have. The issue is that uh, it's very difficult to identify inhibitors and we were very lucky in having selected estrogen and androgen sensitive cells because you can manipulate the proliferation of these cells with, and with estrogens or androgens respectively. So that was, uh, let's say, what happens many times in science, that you are lucky to bump into something that originally you didn't anticipate. So then we thought that we solved the problem. Of course, the solution that we proposed was not very popular because what we were claiming is that there is no evidence that growth factors play a physiological role. In fact, there is no uh, uh, target that is specific for growth factors. It's a long story, but in any case, the, the conclusion that we drew was that precisely that there was, uh, that proliferation was a constitutive thing and that uh, according to the textbooks, uh, the problem of cancer was a problem of control of cell proliferation. So we thought, oh, that is great. So now we solve the problem of control of cell proliferation, now we will solve the problem of cancer. And then when we move to cancer, we realized that cancer is not a problem of cell proliferation. Cancer is a tissue-based disease. It's not a cell-based disease. And I have followed some of the presentations that... Okay, wait. So... The thinking is that, I guess, mutations happen and it's on an individual cell level and one cell starts to go rogue and that's how cancer starts. That's the, the current dogma, right? 
the current dogma is precisely is uh, over a century old. This was produced by or suggested by Theodor Roveri, who was not a cancer researcher, but he speculated that there were these problems in the chromatin of cells. And eventually, after it was determined that DNA was the uh, genetic material, that there was these uh, mutations in somatic cells that cause cancer. The problem is that now that uh, people have more sophisticated ways of exploring the problem, it turns out that those so-called driver mutations are present in normal cells, and normal cells have driver mutations. So in, in other words, it has been proven, in addition to our own experiments, it has been proven by those that have worked on the subject that the somatic mutation theory is invalid. But there are a number of sociological reasons why people keep on harping on that uh, dead horse, but well, what do you mean it's a tissue-based phenomenon? So right. you're saying these, these driver mutations are present in, let's say, all the cells of tissue, but why don't those cells then grow out of control? What's the signaling that stops them? But to start with, what we claim is that cancer is a tissue-based disease. The evidence that has been collected, and there is a lot of evidence that has been collected claiming that mutations cause cancer, now has been let's say, invalidated by what I just said, that uh, if normal cells have the same mutations that cancer cells, then you have to ask the question, what, why do you have uh, mutations that cause cancer? In addition, what is clear that the diagnosis of cancer is not done by molecular biologists, but by pathologists. In other words, in order to certify that someone has a tumor, the hospitals and in general, they give a piece of tissue to a pathologist that is competent to read the, the slide and says, well, this is cancer or this is not cancer. And the molecular biologist who have described many mutations, his cells, he cannot do that. I don't know if you follow that. Well, I, all right. I understand that the mutations don't seem to be, again, the driver because they're present I in all cells. Are, in tissue, but... According to our view, Mutations are an epiphenomenon. I, I don't deny, and nobody can deny, that cancer cells have mutations, but normal cells have mutations as well. And uh, cancer cells, in some cases, have been shown not to have mutations. And normal cells have been shown to have mutations, the same mutations that cancer cells. So, so how, do you, how do you think cancer first begins in a given tissue? Okay, when I said tissue, what I meant to say is that it is the, let's say, morphogenetic field. In other words, the carcinogen uh, affects the, the epithelium and the stroma that is underneath the epithelium. And there is a, obviously a dialogue between the stroma and the epithelium. Epithelial cells do not proliferate in normal uh, conditions. And after uh, they are exposed to carcinogens that don't have to be mutagens, they start producing a tumor. And uh, we know all the causes of cancer. What we have to do is to explain how all those causes produce tumor. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. 
please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. For example, radiation produced cancer, uh, chemical carcinogen produced cancer, viruses produce cancer, but not directly. The viruses that uh, have been called carcinogenic viruses, what they produce is a disease. And the disease, in the case, for example, of uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, produces this disruption between the stroma and the epithelial cells, in this case, hepatocytes. In the case of uh, cervical cancer, what they produce precisely is a, another type of, a similar type of process whereby the epithelial cells lose control from the stroma, and as a result, they start proliferating and produce carcinoma. Okay, so again, how do you believe cancer starts? A, a carcinogen... In the, in, the local, in the local vicinity of a cell, what does it do to it? Does it epigenetically change it? And now there's suddenly expression of the genes that were there, that were mutated or just that are there and they're just being upregulated? Or what do you think is the mechanism? People talk about mechanism under the premise that we are machines and we are not machines. We are, let's say, living creatures. And that is a very important uh, discrimination that we have to establish. We are not machines, we are not computers, we are living organisms, and living organisms change. Uh, specifically, I can tell you, for example, that I am not the same person that started this uh, dialogue with you. Constantly I change, as you do as well, and when we are exposed to these carcinogens, the carcinogens affect the, this dialogue between the stroma and the helium, as a result of which the cells are uh, uh, given the opportunity to proliferate. You have to remember that the first cell, let's say the, what is called the LUCA, was, uh, let's say, created, quote-unquote, 3.8 billion years ago, and nobody was around to, let's say, tell it to proliferate. So that's why proliferation is the default state of all cells. Nothing has happened since then that has changed that idea that Proliferation is the default state. The same is true in our organism. Now, empirically, we have shown that if you change the, uh, you make a recombinant between cells, the, I mean, tissues that have been exposed to the carcinogen and tissues that have not been exposed to the carcinogen, you can show precisely that the cells that have been exposed to the carcinogens are not necessarily the ones that produce the, develop the tumor, but the stroma cells that have been exposed to the carcinogens are the ones to allow that allow the epithelial cells to become a carcinoma. I understand that we're not just mechanical, but there has to be some biochemistry going on. There has to be some oh, again, yeah, me no, mechanism see, specifically, but that how I, cancer arises. How do you believe it happens? I, I am fully aware that uh, biochemistry is uh, what's going on inside the cell, but you see. We have been, a lot of people have, very smart people have been trying to describe what is, what you call the mechanism, the biochemical mechanism. And after 100 years of trying, nobody has been able to explain cancer. And those who, for example, 
uh, clinicians, uh, oncologists who have tried to use those, uh, let's say, approaches that say would indicate that this is a molecular disease have failed. And unfortunately, as a medical doctor, I am saddened by this event. But uh, the fact is that, uh, as uh, one of your speakers, Dr. Reza, said that she was so frustrated because she couldn't solve the problem. And that is the reality, unfortunately. So I'm totally with you. I mean, I, I perceive, you know, people and other creatures to be holobionts. You know, they have a microbiome and they're made of many different things, not, one, not just one thing. And I do believe that cells have some level of cognition or ability or awareness. I don't know what the level is. So, But still, how do you think that uh, the cancer arises? What is it? Is it chronic exposure to you know, a substance that disrupts the metabolism of cells and they try to adapt and eventually they maladapt? Like, what do you think is the okay. way that this happens? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You see, we have been sold the idea that from a reductionist, reductionist point of view, we will solve the problem of cancer and many other problems. The fact of the matter is that a lot of people are now reconsidering that idea and ad- admitting that reductionism, in other words, looking for those molecules and looking for these biochemical mechanisms have not solved the problem of cancer, nor the problem of development. Development and cancer are tissue-based diseases, or I mean, in the case the development is normal. So that's why we call that cancer is development gone awry. So it's the level at which we are studying the problem is not at the cell level, because I think that it is enough for 100 years and over $250 billion to have been invested on something that hasn't worked. So, uh, I mean, you have to see the evidence and say, well, there must be something wrong in the way we are thinking. And the way we are thinking is that the solution has to be found from an organicist point of view in which we claim that what we are dealing with is with an organism in which these morphogenetic fields are affected. And whether the, muta- the mutations happen or not, the, the results are not dependent on the presence of those mutations. Only in the case of mutations that happen in a small minority of cases, about 2 or 5% at the most, in which there are mutations that are transmitted through the germplasm, those individuals have all the cells mutated. Well, again, uh, I'm with you. We don't need to take a reductionist view. You know, it's totally fine. But again, you have to take some view. I'm glad. So what, I'm glad what, do you, what do you think is, how do you think it happens? Like, again, I'm just postulating now. I'm theorizing, you know, without knowing anything. So I'm saying perhaps there are molecules, like you say, carcinogens that, Stress the cell metabolically. Maybe they affect localized microbiome. I don't know. Well, the cell not- tries to tries to adapt, and then at some point, it can no longer adapt in a positive way, and then there's a maladaptation. That's just my speculation. So, what what's your thought there? Do you have a better speculation? Well, the speculation that I have is based on the evidence that, for example, Otto Warburg proposed. He was a great uh, biochemist. He clarified a lot about the metabolism of of, uh, carbohydrate. And then he said, ah, now that I got the Nobel Prize, I can solve the problem of cancer. 
And a lot of people since 1930 something have been following Otto Warburg going nowhere. In other words, the problem is not a biochemical problem. There is nothing, in, and this is the other unfortunate thing from a clinical point of view, there is nothing that has been able to, uh, let's say, determine that there is a difference between a normal and a cancer cell. In other words, if you take a cancer cell, it would divide into two cancer cells. And if you take a normal cell, it would divide into two normal cells. And people have been looking at these kinases, thinking that there is something wrong with the kinases, and they are the same kinases that are present in normal cells. The issue okay. is, so the, the end product is always the same, and unfortunately, this has resulted in searching for markers, biochemical markers of cancer that has not given us any information that is valid. I mean, there is no, people have been looking very carefully at trying to find out which is a marker of cancer. And there is no marker of cancer because the problem of markers come from individual cells. Those are uh, examples in which you can find markers. But when it is an tissue-based problem, you don't have markers, unfortunately. Well, what is different about tissue that has cancer in it that's at the stage of, let's say, a one-centimeter tumor? Or what, what, is, what is different about it? There's got to be something that's different. What is different is the fact that tissues are different. The carcinogen breaks that balance that exists in normal morphogenetic fields. That is not translated into a biochemical problem that you can see inside or search for inside the cell. People have been looking for over 100 years. Don't get me wrong. I, what I'm saying is these are very smart people. I'm not uh, saying that. Yeah, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> this is, it's a problem of which are the premises that you adopt. And according to the premises you adopt, you are going to search for certain markers that are Accord that are related to the premises that you adopt. If you are looking for markers that obey to the idea that cancer is a molecular disease, you are going to look for molecules. The issue is that that has happened for the last hundred years, and people have not found those molecules. So, what governs morphogenetic fields? Is it the arrangement of ion well, channels and that the membranes the of problem, cells? That is the problem of development, and, and people comparing how a normal organ develops and how that organ develops when it is exposed to a carcinogen is what is going to give us a, a clue about how to deal with the problem. Unfortunately, this approach that I am proposing is not the majority one. As a result, people keep on doing variations on the same theme, which is mm, that cancer it. is a problem of uh, biochemistry or, or all the or mutations of molecular biology or things of that sort. The issue is that, in my view, in our view, uh, the issue is a problem of which are the premises that you adopt, which are the theory that you adopt. We propose what we call the uh, tissue organization field theory that claims, on the one hand, that cells are basically uh, have a default that tells them that you have to proliferate. And the only thing you can do is to uh, inhibit them in order to modulate the kind of proliferation that is needed in order to form an individual like... Here's a question. If, so if there are such things as morphogenetic fields, then it's not just about proliferation, it's about guided 
directed proliferation and then knowing when to stop and right. how to make these shapes and structures. Like, right. you know, if so, you look at people, there's 120 billion people that have ever lived. Almost all of them have one liver, not two. Right. The liver is usually shaped similarly. It's across from the pancreas. And, right. you know, all these, this information, these, this morphology is governed right. somewhere. Right. But where so, is it governed? How is it governed? Okay. So as a result of collaboration that we have developed with colleagues uh, at the Col Normale Supérieure in Paris, France, we have proposed what we call a theory of organism. Other people have also thought about the problem of uh, defining which are the epistemological reasons why things are the way they are. And uh, on the one hand, Darwin dealt with phylogenesis, and the theory of organisms is dealing with ontology. So we have adopted three main base, three main uh, principles on which we are planning to work, and we already started working. And they are one that proliferation and motility are the default of all cells. This, okay, let me, I'll, I'll come back to this in a minute. The other one is that there is variation as a result of a proliferative event. Each time a cell proliferates, varies, and that helps the uh, organism balance possibilities of preventing disease. And then, there is, in addition to proliferation and variation, there is organization. And the organization is the one that keeps having all of us a single liver, a single heart. Those rules have yet to be discovered, unfortunately. Right. But with having the principles, you can start looking for variables. As a result, you can put together the whole thing. But this is just the beginning of a new way of looking at organisms. Okay, but do you have any insight as to what governs morphogenetic fields? Like, I know I've spoken to Michael Levin, who's also at Tufts, and he seems to be saying that the ion channels that are that constitute the exterior cell membrane of cells have within them a patterning that governs, you know, morphogenetic fields, morphogenesis. So that, what have you, have you gotten fine. that for? That, that's fine with us. I mean, I think that uh, Michael is a, a very smart guy who's doing uh, quite a bit in, in this field, but uh, that is, unfortunately, he also has uh, this idea that uh, we are type of computers, and we happen not to believe that. A cell is not a computer. As a result, trying to computerize biology is not going to, let's say, end up being a productive line of thought, at least in our view. We cannot prevent anyone from doing what we want. But we believe that that Michael is doing is quite, in fact, it's very interesting and exciting. But there are other avenues that help us in model, uh, making models, and this is what we are working on, and we started already. Uh, See, the, the, the problem is, like, you know, where, again, where is the life in the cell? You know, I could say, okay, yes, it's not a computer. I don't want it to be a computer either, but where is the life in the cell? Like, oh, like what does it mean to, for something to be alive versus not alive? Like, we're getting to questions like that. that How are you going to answer that? That is a very, very valid question. We are made up of cells. Once we die, we happen to be part of physics. In the meantime, or chemistry, but we are not alive anymore. The, right. in, the fact that we are alive indicates that we move, 
and uh, we pro uh, our cells proliferate. In fact, uh, that is quite clear. The, the, the difference between life and no life is precisely these three principles that we are talking about. A, a stone doesn't proliferate, a stone right. doesn't move. That, for that, you have to look into uh, uh, Isaac Newton's physics. In biology, you have to look at cells that move. I mean, in fact, that is a peculiarity of life, that it proliferates and moves. If it doesn't proliferate and move, it's not alive. In addition... Well, uh, I'll take you down a quick sidetrack. What about viruses? Do you think that they're uh, that, alive or not, and why? That That is a very interesting question. As you are well aware, there are uh, controversies about whether viruses are part of life or not. The right. issue is that uh, in order to have viruses that proliferate, they have to invade cells. In right. other words, they don't have the ability to proliferate by themselves. The same is true with DNA. DNA, you can put a, a flask full of DNA, but it doesn't, it's not life. It's, in order to have life, you, have, you need DNA, but it is, uh, let's say, not life itself. Unfortunately, sociologically speaking, people are talking about uh, this car has the DNA or patriots have this DNA, which right. is, uh, let's say, a metaphoric uh, uh, nightmare. But uh, people keep on talking about these metaphors and believing that people, I mean, that, they are, uh, that there is this <laughs> idea that... Uh, DNA is alive. DNA is not alive. DNA is a, it's a chemical, chemical. But in the, in the context of a cell, it's necessary for the yeah, life but, of the cell. But so it's here, like, like why, where is, again, where, why is it that a cell is alive? Where is the life in it? If you, you know, like tortured a cell and systematically took out like the ribosomes or the endoplasmic reticulum or well, you know, when, at what point is it dead? It's weird. Like where does life come from in the cell? Why is this assemblage of molecules lead lead to the instantiation of you know cognition and ability in life well if you look at things from a so-called historical point of view you know that uh, there was this uh, soup this prebiotic soup made up of a lot of chemicals but there was no life until for reasons that nobody understands and nobody was be has been able to reproduce a cell was created, quote-unquote. But nobody knows how that happened. The Charles Darwin was a smart guy who said, I am not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. What I'm going to do is to say, well, now that we have life, I will try to explain how come that we are the way we are and how is that evolved. But nobody, I mean, he, even in that, at that time, he didn't know even that DNA had anything to do with, with life. Uh, in 1859, and he decided, among other things, because his wife was very religious, not to touch that, that issue, because, of course, it brings up the issue of how come that life, without somebody who created it, which is something that I assume most of us could evolve. The fact is that nobody knows how life was created. Nobody was there. And that's why you have theories. The so you're not just, but, but Carlos, like you're not just sitting there saying, well, we can't do this, we can't do that. You've, you know, you're, I mean, you're a scientist. So what are your theories? How could it be possible? What are you planning to test? You know, I know your, your mind, I'm sure, is super active. So you got to be working on something. 
oh, we are working on, on precisely this determining how come that tumors evolve. And that's, we are working with these recombinant uh, tissues that uh, would tell us, for example, they are, let's say, we have been working with the mammary, uh, rat mammary glands and rat mammary tumor. They are strains of rats that uh, no matter how much uh, carcinogens you add and give them, they would not produce a tumor. And uh, they are rats that are very susceptible. So we try to uh, recombinant, uh, make recombinant between the stroma of uh, the rats that are resistant to carcinogenesis and rats that are susceptible. And as a result, we learn how is it or why is it that some rats produce tumors and others do not, exposed to the same carcinogen. So, for example, there is a... Uh, the strain of rats is called Copenhagen, that uh, no matter what you do, you don't get tumors from them. Okay. And other rats like Wisterfirth or Fisher that are very susceptible. So based on the theory of the, the, the tissue organization, we are working at that level. It's not that uh, we think that there is no reason for people to look inside cells. It, it's a subject like any other subject. I mean, people are entitled to do what they want from a scientific point of view. The issue is that to solve the problem of cancer, 100 years is enough to show. In fact, the people who have, uh, uh, let's say, worked for uh, trying to unravel the so-called molecular biology and the mechanism of carcinogenesis have already given up. And they have published articles in which they say, sorry, I don't know what's going on. I, I quit. But what else, what, what principles need to be incorporated into analysis then? What, what would take it from reductionist to more holistic? What are some of the things you found that are critical to include in your thought process? Well, we expect that knowing more about the, what's going on in uh, the interaction between the stroma and epithelial, we learn how to model these uh, processes and learn from uh, that point of view, what is that is happening in carcinogenesis in greater detail? The issue is that uh, there are certain problems in science that are very difficult to resolve. The only thing that you can say is that there are certain avenues that have been explored and have been totally unproductive. And the somatic mutation theory is one of them. And that's why we are trying to convince people to move to a much more, uh, let's say, hopeful area, which is that of looking at carcinogenesis from an organism's point of view. You have to have some underlying assumptions or mechanisms, well, even I, if, if, if the mechanism doesn't constitute well, the whole, it's still a part of it. You know? As a medical doctor, I'm interested in um, benefiting patients. And unfortunately, what I can say at this point is that the cure of uh, cancer is prevention. The issue is that it is a very uh, unpopular uh, solution because uh, prevention, on the one hand, uh, let's say, from the point of view of, let's say, scientific, let's say, production, Nobel Prizes are not given for prevention. Nobel Prizes are given for cures. Then if you talk about prevention, for example, if you prevent people from, uh, or at least convince people that they shouldn't smoke, the uh, incidence of uh, lung cancer goes down and many other uh, cancers go down. 
but people don't have the pressure as they think of smoking or drinking or doing the kind of things that are important to generate cancer. But if so, people try to keep themselves healthy, if everyone did it, what level of cancer would still exist, do you believe? Do you think it'd be nothing? Oh, it's yes. Possible? What, do you, what level do you think it would be versus that? Okay. Uh, well, the, the so-called genetic cancers that are due to uh, mutations are a minority. Mutations of the germplasm are a minority. And the, uh, the other cancers that are uh, generated that most of us have or may have are uh, preventable. Most of them are. But we accept pollution. We accept a number of things that uh, are, uh, let's say, counterproductive to our health under the argument that, well, it's fun. But uh, uh, there are things that can be done, clearing uh, and cleaning the environment that will uh, make our sons and daughters and granddaughters and grandsons healthier. And I hope that uh, this uh, crisis that we are going through, the COVID, will make us think about what is going on in the environment and try to prevent cancer. That is probably the best cure that can be offered at this point. Okay. Eventually, we can offer alternatives. But, for example, the alternatives that are being offered by the somatic mutation theory, in fact, are most of the things that people are being treated with, for example, uh, in chemotherapy are carcinogens themselves. So it's very sad that that is, let's say, the, the, the reality. I got you. Well, Carlos, very good for now. What, what's the best way for people to find out more about your particular research and your thoughts? Where can they go? Well, we have uh, published a, num- a number of papers. Uh, my uh, email address is carlos.sonenshine. Uh, at tafs.edu and Anna Soto's uh, address is anna.soto at uh, tafs.edu and you can search us in Google and uh, whatever engine that you use and uh, I'm sure that uh, you will have a different view about cancer from the let's say the one that textbooks are offering. All right, very good. Carlos, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.